This is episode number 155. How do you keep the fire going with Scott Mason? Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few brief announcements. First one being an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming event called Survive to Thrive. Your past does not have to determine your future. This is an experience that we started developing months ago where we wanted to create a shared space where we can learn from speakers who will be coming in from all over the country to talk to us about topics that relate to facing our fears, breaking our bias, and reinforcing our potential during these rather uncertain times. In addition, this is an opportunity for you to get more connected to our community of like-minded individuals who have walked a similar path or are walking the same exact path of a journey that you might be a part of right now. If you would like to know more details about how to join this particular experience, go ahead and visit our website at overcomingodds.today forward slash survive to thrive. Your past does not determine your future. Also, if you like what you heard on any of the previous episodes, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring stories. Now, let's get back to the show. Um, Good. Good well, afternoon, Oleg. Good to see absolutely, you. Absolutely. I appreciate the fact that you and I are able to have this conversation. And I know you just the way that you and I have been uh, friends and connecting in general, we probably could have had hours and hours um, of conversation prior to this. So I'm glad that absolutely. you and I are able to have this um have this dialogue and really talk about this um, topic of how do you keep the fire going after day one? Um, I think this is a really relevant topic, especially when it comes to anyone who's seeking a job at the moment. Um, And I know that when you and I were initially talking, there was some conversation about your experience as far as working for the government prior. And it was, you know, you get into the job, you get it but then the fire kind of doesn't burn as well as you thought it might. And there's that sense of security, which I think plays a big role. So in order to start this off, tell us a little bit about your experience as far as working for the government or in that particular role where you sense that pattern emerge when you were first applying for the job and you were trying to maintain that fire of getting a job yeah. and then once you got it yeah. and then it kind of slowly diminished. Why do you think that happened? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, part of the reason I got into government, I got into government and I think that it's interesting that you raised government in particular as a uh, job where this sort of thing can happen is that I was very mission oriented. I had always mm-hmm. been interested in public policy. I live in New York City and so the opportunity to be involved um, in an organization that could have real social impact in basically the largest Mm -hmm. city in the Northern Hemisphere, 
um, was an opportunity that I could not pass up. So when I started, I was really, really fired. I was prepared to do whatever I needed to, to make my boss happy, to um, engage with the issues that I was facing and to be fully committed. And one of the big challenges was maintaining that. Government can be mm -hmm. very, very hard. In a lot of ways, I'm sure it's more extreme than situations. But in a lot of ways, it's more similar than people might be willing to, um, willing to accept, simply because mm -hmm. government has been tarnished for political reasons for so long. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was most shocking about it was the extent to which, and this is naivete on my part, um, but I think it's a naivete that a lot of people walk into jobs with, is the extent to which politicization occurs in any sort of group situation, unless it's very carefully managed or unless the leadership makes sure that it's stamped out. And by politicization, I'm not really talking about politics as a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. I'm mm -hmm. talking about organizationally there being a power structure means that are, are um, other than meritocracy and that people quickly figure out on a subconscious level if they want to advance at all. Mm -hmm. And when they begin to figure it out, their performance is governed by adhering to those quote unquote political norms rather than the actual norms that the job specifications would require. And when that happens, the fire can end very quickly because the job becomes mm. delegitimized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And the reason why is because as someone who is kind of on the other side of that and that's able to provide certain jobs and opportunities for people, one of the things that I look for as far as my number one, two or three uh, things on the checklist is person's work ethic. And I've always been curious as far as how, what is the approach that they took in getting that particular job? What are the hurdles they went through and how far were they able to go within that process? And are they able to sustain certain elements of that once they receive it? Because what I've learned from my experience is that I think when, when getting the job and there's that sense of security that becomes a real thing, yeah. then that motivation is no longer the same. So the question that I've always wondered is, how do you reinstill that motivation within people as far as, okay, you went X, Y, and Z in getting that particular position, and then how do you maintain that moving forward? What do you do as an individual that allows you to kind of sustain the same form of energy so that that position doesn't only last for a month or a year, and then after that you have to look for another opportunity, but more so this can, this can be something that you can have for however long in your life. One of the things that I think, by the, <clears throat> by the way, as an aside, that's interesting about everything that you just said. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting about you as an individual and why I think we've connected and sort of goes as to what overcoming odds is about, at least to me, is the idea of looking at common situations from an, un from an uncommon lens and trying to ask questions that are beneath the surface that may lead to deeper illumination and to be able to revolutionize or at least rethink how a lot of these things happen and what the outcomes and possibilities are. And so, you know, one of the things that could be very interesting are, there are one of the things that could be very interesting is what your own imagination might be leading you to or how you might be thinking about these things. And the reason I say that in particular as 
to you as someone that is unusually imaginative is that one of the things that can happen in an organizational setting is that those that survive there long enough, particularly if that organization is highly politicized, can themselves become so acculturated to that politicization and have basically drunk the Kool-Aid to mm -hmm. such an extent that then they end up manifesting the very things that killed everyone around them. It's almost like attrition drives people to become exactly the monster <laughs> that drove out everyone else. And so that's how what could even have been conceived of as a meritocracy ends up being so much less. That's the way it was done. A young person experiences their job. That's how I was managed or not managed. That's what I saw. And therefore, that must be right. Walking into any job and not just understanding that you've got to learn the political rules there as well as the substantive rules as to how to do the job, um, but not to let that learning curve so crowd your mind that mm -hmm. you can't question is itself a whole other dynamic. And then how do you discipline yourself to question in a way that's safe in that environment, even if it's just internally, so that you're not succumbing? And I think one of the interesting things that that raises and what you then is embedded in what you say is how do you think about opening that space for that questioning by the employee to occur? If the workplace is tyrannical, for instance, questioning just isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. What do you do in that case then? Like, what, have you experienced similar situations like that? And if so, what did you personally do when maybe the responsibility shifted to you to question the, the leadership and the way that the culture was set up? Or do you really not have any other option besides to exit that company completely? Well, that's interesting. Because I'll say just as a beginning, the minute you say exiting a company is an option, mm -hmm. you actually have a lot of freedom to maneuver within that company. When you're afraid of exiting or of an exit happening to you, then limitations really occur. You know, I'm going to tell you a story, Oleg. Um, mm -hmm. And I, want, I think that, I hope this is a story that a lot of folks find meaningful about something that completely changed the way I viewed the work world. I had a very senior position in which I reported directly to an agency head um, towards the end of my career with government. It wasn't the last job I had, but it was the second to last job. And I had been in government at many points at that time and knew how things worked. So if the agency head had a particular objective, objective, one of the things that I could do was provide her with guidance as to how to navigate um, the bureaucracies as well as the various stakeholders to have her goal achieved. In this case, the agency head wanted her goal achieved a very particular way that I advised her politely and with a lot of humility would be problematic. A, it was technologically impossible with the technology that the city had at that time. But then B, it was politically unfeasible for a whole host of reasons. Um, and I explained what those reasons were. Her response to me was very interesting. 
she said, you know, Scott, when you talk to me, you sound so stupid that if I were you, I'd consider buying a pistol, putting it in my mouth and just shooting. Now, there were, my staff was in the room and a lot of my peers were in the room. I had been appointed to be the person to say this because I was perceived as the person that was most courageous and could most clearly articulate the position. Um, and at that point, I laughed it off. I was not going to have a you know meltdown or a rage session right in the middle of a meeting with an agency head, although that would have been very dramatic and kind of egotistically fun if I had done that. <laughs> but, but that's not how we operate in any place other than our fantasy. So, um, you know, one of the things that taught me was that I needed to develop that freedom to leave. There's absolutely no excuse for anyone to have to tolerate that sort of treatment. Once that happened, I quickly left that job for another one. And I decided that I was going to take full ownership of the unit that I was heading and really try and create something different. And that was telling my staff you have the right to question me. There will not be repercussions. And that's not just about what I want to do or about what I tell you to do. It's about process. It's about not guessing me right off a cliff. And I asked them to test me. If they felt they couldn't, if I was in a mode where I was like, this is what we're going to do, and sort of like a rhinoceros charging at a target, I told them, wait 24 <laughs> hours. Come back to me. I'm letting you know how to manipulate me. Within 24 hours, ask me the same question. I bet you'll hear a more positive response. And they loved, by the way, the fact that they had a boss that actually gave them the tools to manipulate them. Most people don't get that, apparently. It worked. Mm -hmm. People made mistakes, and I was comfortable with that. That being said, even in that situation, I paid a price. There were a couple of my staff members who made serious mistakes. And I was called onto the carpet for that. Now, I stood up for them. I told them, you know, I told the boss that I had at that time, we all make mistakes. People have to have that freedom to make mistakes. This, these weren't mistakes um, that were criminal or, or bad intention. They were just human error. Mm -hmm. um, and that boss told me, well, if you will not punish them, then I will punish you. I don't care. I stood by that. Because in that little pocket, of that little corner of the universe, I felt like something different could be created. A lot of people go through their whole careers never hearing that they did a good job or that their input could mean something. Imagine going through your whole life and never hearing that day after day. If we can create that pocket, to me, that was worth any sacrifice that I was willing to make. Because I knew I'd make it elsewhere, you know, somewhere else. And going back to your question then, intentionally creating that space is a huge deal but also making sure people know that they have the right and encouraging them to test and if they if you pass that test they'll tell you a lot of things sometimes hmm. those are things you need to hear do you feel like a lot of the experiences that you've had in the workplace helped you exit that particular setting and become an entrepreneur or was there something else that kind of said hey this is what i want to do and this is how i want to build 
different elements of my life, such as being a speaker and all the other things that are able to pursue at this particular stage? I mean, substantively, yes. Those, there were, you know, there was knowledge that I had. For instance, at one job I had um, dealt with a lot of, one of my early jobs was contract litigation. Um, I am a recovering lawyer, and so that's what I, I did during part of my legal career. Employment litigation I also did. So knowing, for instance, as an entrepreneur, how to handle employment issues from a legal perspective or how to negotiate a contract and having a clear understanding of the implications of poor contractual terms, that's going to help any entrepreneur. That being said, those are the small things. Mm -hmm. The big things that I learned were how to run something in a way that I felt was positive. That being said, and I'm sure you can relate to this as an entrepreneur, someone whose own world is constantly getting bigger and bigger. Right. The most amazing thing about being an entrepreneur is the daily reminder of how much less you know really thought you knew yeah every day <laughs> I, I, I see some smiling there so i assume that's um, that's something you can relate to <laughs> every single second i think the journey of an entrepreneur it's such um it's such a complex journey to explain but one of the things that i've learned is that every single day i step into the unknown and i think cultivating this mindset that because i'm stepping into the unknown if I can just step into it with this mindset that, hey, I'm just here to learn and improve and unlearn certain things, then it helps me that much more moving forward versus stepping into it possibly with an ego saying, hey, I know it all. I know how to navigate through this landscape. When, re when in reality, I think in the case of you and me and the worlds that we're choosing to create, especially as, as public speakers, it's a very challenging world to navigate through. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of this notion that one person commented here, being a student student of life. I, I think saw it's that, a, yes. I think it's a very important thing to understand is maintaining that beginner's mindset into every single thing that you go into as part of this journey. And then when you talk about the original topic, which is keeping the fire burning after day one, Mm -hmm. then making sure that you as the leader exemplify that mindset saying, I don't know. That's okay. In fact, it can be kind of amazing because it sets the stage for your staff to feel that. And it also makes them feel great when you turn to them, honestly, and say, I don't know this. Can you give me the answer? What are your thoughts of the answer? And, you know, as to the answer in a hierarchical structure, it can be, so challenging for those that are quote unquote lower on the totem pole to feel as though they have anything that their boss doesn't. When you give them that, man, my feeling is that they're on top of the world. The best boss I had, and I, I love her to this day, I would see every now and then, sometimes with big questions, she just, she was, you know, all of five foot two, kind of a little <laughs> old grandmother look. Um, why she had a, a pig picture of Yoda on her, um, on by her desk. And I thought this was very Yoda ish. She'd just shrug with the pencil in her ear and say, mm, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what a great thing to learn. Um, mm -hmm. what a great thing to model. And I love hearing that that's what you're doing is if you understand that about yourself, your staff is going to be able to understand that too. They're going to see you. They're going to follow you as the leader. 
you're mm-hmm. creating that culture. You're setting the stage. They're going to simply want to um, echo that. What a wonderful thing for them to echo. Yeah. Why do you think it's difficult to use I don't know as an answer? And the reason why I ask it is because I've been pondering upon this for quite some time. And, and one of the things that I've learned is that one of the challenges of maybe using I don't know as an answer when it comes to especially uh, different things that we are asked of within our job roles is maybe because of the competitive culture that we live in. Because if you kind of think about it, at least my experience has been, when I go for an interview, it's expected of you to know yes more than the no. And if you say no, then it, it's really next one. Next one in right. line comes in and, and they take that over. And so I'm curious to know kind of from your perspective, what has your experience been with I don't know and is that something that has been accepted within certain cultures that you've been a part of or not really? In areas in which I was practicing as an attorney, mm-hmm. I don't know was acceptable so long as it was followed by the words, but I will find out. Um, and, and I think that that was not unreasonable. Usually, if I found out and there was simply no legal answer, I think people understood that. And then I could provide them with an assessment of the risk or um, help them manage the I don't know. And I think if you were doing that, even the most, there were some, again, bosses that were kind of loopy that saw the role of an attorney as getting them to say yes with legal cover. Um, in which mm-hmm. case there are ethical issues and, and exiting the job really would be the only strategy. But talking about a more rational boss, that was the case. Now, once I left legal jobs, it really was a different story. The idea that um, expertise is more valuable than anything else, including curiosity and openness, as well as like you said, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head, competitive culture, showing that you are the expert sometimes did dictate that now occasionally i would be bold and say i don't know or i would hear people do that and sometimes it would be a credibility builder if it was framed the right way it -hmm. could also be framed as a dig at those that were providing answers if you said for instance i don't know because blah 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 and directly undercut what um someone had already given as an answer And those sort of passive-aggressive, ego-driven games can play into the politicization of an organization's culture. That's dangerous, and it kills the fire when people see it because they have to think not only, okay, do I not know the answer? um, Or if I give an answer, am I going to be under, you know, am I going to be basically sweetly stabbed in the back? Um, Mm -hmm. And so going as to not only creating that culture of openness, I suppose, but thinking of it in light of the wonderful questions you're offering, that the culture is one where people truly are not looking for reasons to basically throw each other under the bus, um, can also help make those open-ended inquiries sincere ones and not areas for people to exploit. Now, look, I'll be honest, in many organizations, and I hate to say this, but if there is someone who is truly toxic in an organization, I feel it's if the organization wants to be the sort that you were talking about aspiring your own organization to earlier, those right. people, for the sake of that organization and everyone in, have to move on to a different enterprise that might fit them better. 
because it's like it can be like a cancer mm-hmm. and if it's left to fester i don't care how much money that person's bringing in how talented or unique they are that cancer spreads everyone and by the time it's metastasized throughout the organization you can't unroot it and not only that but in my experience the staff that have gotten the cancer will blame the head of the organization for giving it to them and so mm-hmm. that also will kill the fire. It's really going into the extreme complexity of being an organizational leader and the many, many levels that one has to think on in order to succeed. It's not easy stuff, but the power of creating that organizational culture, whoa, impact you can have. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a big responsibility to be in a position as a leader whatever the title may be within an organization because or my experience has been is there are so many components of an organization that even in my case i'm yet to learn but maintaining that open space as you mentioned as far as hey we're all here to figure it out that's what helps grow and i think fostering a culture through which people of different backgrounds can come in and share their input and experience, but also share their aspirations, their dreams and whatever it is that they want to go for. And then saying, Hey, we're all here supporting each other's dream because here's another thing that I've learned in building uh, organization and team and stuff like that is it's important to understand people's motives. It's important to understand what actually motivates them because in reality, let's face it, you and I might be part of one organization, but it doesn't mean that we both of us have the same exact dream for that organization. The dream of yours may only be a slice of a bigger picture for me in building a particular movement or organization or group or whatever it may be. So understanding where people come from, I think is important because then it gives you just a foundation to go off of and say, hey, this is an open space. This is where we're, all of us are here to support each other's dreams, no matter what that dream may be. Absolutely. And, you know, before I go on, I just see that a very dear person to me, Ryan Warnberg, who I haven't talked to in longer than I like, has joined, so I do have to say hi to Ryan. He's a <laughs> human being, and everyone should know who he is. Um, I, I really think that that's, that is true. It's interesting. So for a few years, I worked for the New York City Department of Homeless Services. I headed a unit there. And Mm -hmm. one would think that the reason people got jobs in that organization was because they wanted to work on issues related to homelessness. Um, And one of the things I did when I started in that position was I met with every single one of the junior people that were there, and actually some of the senior people too, but I focused on the junior people first um, because I wanted to make sure they understood that I was there for them and not just um, at the top of, you know, that particular part of the organizational ladder. And it was fascinating because some of them actually were not there for that purpose at all. Those conversations and those questions led to that discovery. For instance, one man simply said, I want to be a general counsel somewhere. This is the place that hired me. And so I'm looking to step up. And that was great because I was able to mentor him and to guide him in a way that would help him. And he and I, by the way, are still friends to this day. It also, by the way, didn't put us in a position where I was wasting his time. Um, focusing, I wonder why, why don't you care about this and this issue? Why are you not focused on da, da, da related to the substance of what this government agency was dealing with um, when that really wasn't why he was even there? And mm-hmm. so that's a classic example of, 
you know, something that you told me the other day when we were having a mm -hmm. conversation. I was talking to you about something. I was talking to you about you. <laughs> and you very politely in that way that only you do said, Scott, I'm going to ask you to focus on not making assumptions about what I'm thinking <laughs> as well mm -hmm. as other people. And I was like, oh, yeah, I need to stop doing that because that's exactly what I when you're making assumptions about people and what they're thinking, not only do you get the wrong answer sometimes, but as I thought about what you said, what I was doing was also dehumanizing that person. Or I was objectifying them. I was making yeah. them purely a totem in my mind, not allowing the fullness of what you were in that moment to be. And that's mm -hmm. something that as a manager, I think, or a leader of any sort, we need to be walking through every day, checking mm -hmm. ourselves on. Mm -hmm. So you cut me down a little bit, but it was a good, it was a good little, you know, it was a good thing to have had said. Yeah, I think it's important for me. It's a great reminder to understand that, hey, assumptions, it's, it's not so much about eliminating assumptions, but it's becoming more aware of when I make yep. those assumptions. Um, yep. I want to make a slight transition because I know that we focused quite a bit on kind of keeping the fire going from the employee perspective within the organization, and that's anyone who's looking to secure a particular job or whatever it may be, but transition that into um, a little bit entrepreneurial journey. And one of the things that I'm curious about from your end, and this is something that I've wondered for quite some time, when it comes to your own entrepreneurial journey, what are some of the hidden costs or a hidden price that you had to pay that wasn't described to you when you first began as an entrepreneur? Mm. Great question. Hmm. The hidden cost, first of all, I think one is that you're so excited, at least I should say, I'm so excited by entering on the journey and so enraptured by the possibilities that you see in front of you that mm -hmm. until you're in the journey, it doesn't occur to you but, and again, it goes back to what we were just talking about, so your transition was perfect, um, that people may not see it the same way that you do. Um, sometimes it can be positive, sometimes it can be negative. So I, for instance, would talk to people about what I was doing when I um, joined the first company that was my first entrepreneurial venture. And um, a lot of people in both of the sectors that I'd previously worked in, I had worked in nonprofit as well as government, a lot of them were like, what? Why are you doing that? Why on earth? Right, like I was, I was crazy. That was mm -hmm. a hidden cost because, to the extent that connection with other people is sliced by even the slightest hint of a negative judgment, um, mm -hmm. particularly or, or lack of understanding, um, it was it was a price that I had to pay, and it made me just a little bit more self conscious until I had developed the confidence to be able to um, just sort of let that wash off. And that's a that's a developmental journey that I went on. The other thing, though, that was interesting was it was surprising in ways that were positive. And again, the hidden price that I paid um, for not having for, you know, letting that sort of remark get to me was that I didn't also enjoy other opportunities. So I went to a Christmas party with some people that I used to work with after I'd been in my first company as an entrepreneur for a couple of years. And I was actually nervous walking in there because they were all attorneys. They had done big contract cases. Um, and some of them had gone on to major law firms, sort of work in large corporations or whatever. And there was me with my little 
company. And I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, I'm really nervous about this. I think everyone might laugh at me because some people have not understood this, why I did this before. And, you know, I'm not that multi-billionaire yet. <laughs> are you kidding, Scott? She said, you're going to be the bell of the ball. Everyone in that room is going to be. have been doing all sorts of other things. And that was also a hidden cost. Any opportunity, right? The time you're spending on anything other than building that vision, enjoying your life, being grateful, all of these positive things is an opportunity cost that can come. So if you don't manage that um, appropriately, um, and again, for me, it was a maturation process, then these things can be hidden costs. That being said, Oleg, and I don't mm -hmm. know how you feel about it, I would very much love to hear what you have to say. Those hidden costs are like three cents on a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Negligible. <laughs> I think for me, one of the ones that I've learned throughout this journey is um, critics and just uh, criticism in general. In my opinion, as you grow and you expose your work to more perspectives, more groups, and just the, the larger the number becomes, then you face a lot of criticism or you may face a lot of criticism because I don't want to speak for anyone else's journey, but for my journey, it, it has been that. And it's something that actually you and I talked about prior to even hitting the record button on this is the importance of keeping your circle tight and also understanding that there will be people whose intention is there to solely take you down. That's a real thing. Yeah. For the longest time, I didn't want to believe that because I just remember even thinking about that and saying, how could that be a thing? How could there be someone in the world that is there to truly take down what you have built or yeah. what you aspire to build? Yeah. But in truth and in reality, my experience has been that, yes, there are people that exist like that. It's people oftentimes that I've never encountered in my life. I have never seen but yet the feedback and the comments that I sometimes receive would um, show me those things. And so I, I just get curious as far as it, from the perspective of you and I and whoever else that's choosing to build some of these bigger visions, what do you do in that case? Yeah. Yeah. How, do you yeah. how do you personally respond to critics? Depersonalization and an honest appreciation when it's appropriate. You know, the company that I worked at for a while before I started the, you know, the current um, venture that I'm on was mm -hmm. one that was um, a printing company. And we occasionally would get um, emails and phone calls from people that were quite critical. Sometimes it was of the work that we did. Sometimes it was of an element of the process. Sometimes it was whatever. It could have been anything. Sometimes it was stuff that was, you know, out of the blue. Um, I'll never forget someone calling me up and saying, I want to just tell you, this is how I felt about your response to me. And this is how I felt about blah, 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 blah. And a lot of it was really, she was being unreasonable. I felt if I were to step back and be objective, but one of the great things that I learned and that being in a sort of the service industry taught me was that these are still gifts and opportunities. I mean, to some extent, it's a cliche, mm. but if someone cares enough to criticize you, then they are actually someone that you want to listen to. Now, assessing what's really going on and making that decision 
about how you handle that to me is a, a big hidden challenge associated with entrepreneurialism because like you said there are people that are just out there to um tear you down or because they're jealous or they have psychological issues or they're just not reasonable mm -hmm. um and so like you said and to me that's a hard thing because people love to give feedback i love to give feedback to people <laughs> everyone else's problems are so fun to talk about especially <laughs> <for them. laughs> but you know so part of it is being open to what they're hearing, depersonalizing it, understanding that they're, that they're committed to you and connected with you in some way, and then taking it from there, um, assessing it. To me, it became more, less challenging to be open-hearted to the, to the critique and to say yes, so long as I felt that they were coming from a genuine place. Um, mm -hmm. Then to assess like you're talking about well what's the motive and are they down there to pull, you know are they there to pull you down and i worked with people in larger organizational settings who deliberately would give bad advice to their juniors particularly if they felt they were a threat to sort of you know send them off a trail you know into a ditch and mm -hmm. sometimes you don't figure that out until it's too late and sometimes people will say things like you know oleg oh your website would be perfect if you just made the text 10 times longer right, uh, <laughs> right? And, and and as you're beginning how do you know how to assess that being discerning as as we had in a conversation with with someone else yesterday is a very underappreciated skill but so is if you're going to decide to be discerning how to create the criteria for your discernment that's the question underneath the question and um, I've gotten better at it. I'm not as reactive to every single bit of criticism. Oh my God, you know, so-and-so down the street said that my, um, the color of my shirt looked ridiculous on that website photo. I need to never wear that again. Get to right. you know, learn to get it together a little bit. But how do I figure out what's good advice and not? I think that's part of my eternal journey. Mm -hmm. I feel about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think for me, what I've learned is that the importance of choosing to everyone's advice and opinions, but I think the difference becomes is which of those do I choose to implement on? Yeah. And, and that's exactly what you just said as far as I firmly believe that everyone has value. Even in situations where they might be coming from where you don't agree at all with anything yeah. that might be said, I think there are still ways to find value within that. And the, the difference there is the choice that I think we have access to in saying, hey, Yes, this might have been said, but am I going to implement that within um, whatever it is that was criticized? And I, I think in regard to um, websites or different journeys, I what I started to understand was that sometimes people will say those things because they might be going through something. And so whenever you receive kind of a negative wave of, of emotions or feelings or thoughts from someone else, in my opinion, it's very rarely has to do with anything that you've done as wrong. It's something that they're going through and you just happen to be an outlet. You just happen yeah. to be an outlet for them to process, to heal, to understand. And, um, and that's it. That's kind of how I understand it. And from there, I think there's another choice to make as far as, okay, do I want to be part of their healing process? Do yeah. I want to create a space for them to really let out what's inside? Why did they comment this? What makes them feel this way towards me, towards my brand, towards my story, towards whatever it may be? 
So, and in regard to that, I don't believe that's a responsibility I need to carry. I think that's a, you either choose to create that space for that individual or you don't. You're not responsible to create that space for that person, in my opinion. You know, two things come to mind. Mm-hmm. One, part of entrepreneurial success is building relationships with people and creating the sort of partners and the ecosystem uh, in which your vision can thrive and really become something amazing. But one of the challenges that I'm hearing embedded in what you're saying and that everyone has to navigate is how do you set the boundaries that yes. enable that ecosystem to be a healthy one? Um, and so, you know, the thoughts that you might have around that are of particular interest um, because again, setting those boundaries, it can be easy to look back and say, I set that boundary too hard. Or yeah. I was, I did not set a boundary when I needed to. And of course, 2020 you know, hindsight is always oh so perfect, particularly around the <laughs> issue. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, then mm-hmm. the other thing that occurred to me as you were talking was that there are actually two different levels of potential critique that you could be getting, perhaps more, but two came to mind at least embedded in what you were saying. Mm-hmm. One, micro. This looks good on your website. Oh, your video could have been edited this and this way. Oh, you know, your hair looked really good that day. Then there's other more macro things. And it's not just your brand, although your brand is moving in that direction, but mm-hmm. your vision itself. And one of the things that is most interesting um, is how do you create those boundaries and implement that discernment when it comes to something as big as your vision? Because it can be yeah. too easy, particularly around your vision, to get caught in your head. So you may legitimately seek feedback from people or as your vision begins to actualize, receive that feedback. You don't want to ignore feedback that could be keeping your vision from, um, you know, moving into the delusional, let's say. Um, but at the same time, it can also be easy when you're talking about something as personal and as important to your life as your vision for feedback to be something that you let wash off. We all hear stories about people who had naysayers who didn't believe in them and they persevered with that vision until it became reality. We don't mm-hmm. hear the stories about people who had visions that were simply not viable and no one told them no and their vision sort of went into obscurity so how do you differentiate between the two how do you differentiate between the fact that it might be something that is quote-unquote delusional and then also separating from the fact that this is your life this is the way that you understand your life and this is the vision that you choose to move forward with yeah i think one of the interesting things about being an entrepreneur Mm-hmm. that changed my life and my whole worldview um, was a realization that I had around that, actually the realization that some people around me helped me come to <laughs> about that a couple of years ago in early 2019, which is that at best it's a continuum, um, but it also very much, there may be no distinction at all, particularly as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you think about, for instance, um, branding, just as Mm -hmm. a very easy to point at sort of facet of this. 
if you're an entrepreneur, particularly in the space that you and I are in, we ourselves are part of the brand. Yeah. You know, how can you totally separate the two? Or when it comes to, um, you know, your finances, mm -hmm. um, a corporate veil, of course, can create some barrier or boundary between your personal finances and that of the company, but that's mm -hmm. only in rare situations. If you're financing the company or you're sacrificing food on the table or luxuries that a lot of your friends might have so that you can invest money into your future, which I know I'm doing a lot of and I, and mm -hmm. I assume you know, you've done the same, um, mm -hmm. then that boundary really does become a little bit more subtle than might be commonly acknowledged. Um, and that someone within a larger organizational hierarchy doesn't necessarily have to contemplate. Mm. Again, going back to the original theme of keeping the fire going, because that separation for some personality types, maybe for more than we realize, can possibly be also creating a disconnect between their, that, their own vision and that vision of the larger organization. We can't afford that separation all the time, I feel. Mm -hmm. But someone who can, and we're motivated by it, but someone who... Um, might feel that separation may be more vulnerable to feeling the fire slowly begin to die. Um, yeah. Not always, but I wonder, like, you know, and then to what extent are we all entrepreneurs or not, right? Is mm. entrepreneurial personality type something that really exists, or are we just people that um, found ourselves in a life situation and, mm -hmm. and, and are operating accordingly? Hmm. I've, I've wondered that for quite some time as far as are we all entrepreneurs at our core and what does it actually mean to be an entrepreneur because what I've learned is that so many of the skills that I've learned during my early childhood moments of surviving have actually translated into concrete skills of an entrepreneur in today's day and age, the ability to pivot, persevere, to be driven. And so I've been curious to know as far as well, if I have those skills available to me due to my past experiences, and there's so many other people who have had similar backgrounds, just different events, are they all considered entrepreneurs? Or is there some other component that's available to you and I that other people may not have access to? I mean, when, it talks, when you talk about mindset, I think that's, um, that's an acquired thing. I think that's Absolutely. an acquired skill that you gain over time through practice experience and knowledge but I'm, I'm just curious are there other components of an entrepreneur that aren't oftentimes discussed that are actually critical parts of that journey yeah yeah and having both of us gone through been on both sides of the fence right mm -hmm. i think that um and again I, i'll really speak for my own journey here because i am an expert on myself so <laughs> um, that you know it was something that i um came to i wasn't someone that woke up when i was six you know opened up that lemonade stand on the corner and said okay this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life now i have heard of people that are like that um there are elements to my personality that have looking back on it probably been there all along that lend me to entrepreneurialism and that wouldn't be the reason why I chose to see that as a solution to a lot of the challenges that I was facing. Um, mm -hmm. And in particular, I think that it may have come to me later than a lot of folks because 
you know, look, I was the son of a civil servant and a factory worker. Entrepreneurialism, they were amazing in a lot of ways. They were not entrepreneurs, and that wasn't in really their worldview either. And I think I understood why. In that mm -hmm. time and era, you know, they didn't have a capital. There was not that in their cultural milieu. Um, we're much more exposed to that now. But there are also people that had children. And in the case particularly of my father, who had been in the military, liked the structure that a pre-existing organization gave him. You mm -hmm. and I can create structures for ourselves, but that can be hard. And that is the one thing that I wonder if is a dispositional element or not. Um, mm -hmm. The willingness or ability to, or the need to have structure or not imposed from without. You know, honestly, who would have thought that a discussion of entrepreneurialism and keeping your, you know, happy on your job would go in this direction, but it goes as to other underlying um, things too, like to what extent do people feel more comfortable in authoritarian governments, or to what extent do different types of religions, which may be more hierarchical than others, have appeal to people, and are those things innate too? And then to what extent do all of those tie into the set of skills or the dispositions that support entrepreneurialism or not all it's it's amazing because work is so fundamental to who we are that the elements at least in my eyes radiate all over the place into every other sector where we're really interfacing in the world all of these pictures they might seem like they're small um and they may have self-contained frames but the art gallery is potentially huge yeah and I think that also goes back to the fact of the whole concept of structure and in this particular case with so many others that I've had where the way that I would structure a particular conversation would be around this particular topic and you move through it. But in reality, just what you and I just experienced is that we have gone through so many different topics and without a particular structure in mind. So it goes back to the point of why, why do I feel like sometimes I have to be dependent on structure within a conversation, within a job, within a particular path in life, when in reality, that structure, it, it creates itself, but then it's going to reshape into something else and it becomes something completely different. And there's the, none of that process, at least my experience has been, is linear. It's yeah. a zigzag. Yeah, I mean, that's what life is. A one step forward, 50 steps backwards, and then, you know, you go left and right, and then you got to swing and learn how to jump and everything in between. And I think there's, um, that's what I've been kind of curious. And, and maybe that goes back to some control. Maybe that goes back to us as human beings, not all, but some of us wanting to control the process yeah. instead of just letting it be. And that goes as to a question I have, too, which is to what extent um, is the desire for control over process for our lives, over our futures, something that's dispositional, um, or is it something that is a reaction to something, right? Like, mm -hmm. is it that you are born um, in an environment where you particularly, like, let's say a, a household environment is particularly chaotic. Some people may respond to that by seeking to assert control over every aspect of their life. And, you know, I always say, and 
this isn't any particular invention of me. I've been told this mm-hmm. by people a lot wiser that maladaptations often are perfectly reasonable adaptations if the initial environment that the maladaptation, you know, um, arises in is is highly dysfunctional. Um, but then once you leave that into a more functional environment, then the extent to which that adaptation is mal actually maladaptive may become more apparent. And control is one of those, at least potentially one of those things. Um, It can be fun to be in control. It can at least feel safe and secure. And you can also get a sense of power. But it also can lead to unchecked egotism. It can Mm -hmm. lead to missed opportunity. And I think one of the things that you put so well a minute ago and that you bring into so many conversations, and I'd be curious to hear to what extent you believe in bringing this into your organization as well, that sense of childlike joy and having fun, Mm -hmm. swinging in the trees, right? Playing games in the field. Um, And to what extent then is um, our place in the work work world, whether organizationally as an entrepreneur, ideally or maybe not ideally a place where childhood is totally left behind Mm. that's a really good question i think my experience has been without a doubt that a majority of the childhood does get left behind because there becomes this notion that you have to grow up and mature and somehow those two things bring more answers than maybe the answers that we received when we were children. And that's where I got curious as far as understanding that it's it's really interesting because I believe that there is a, I believe there's a yin and a yang for everything. And so when it comes to maintaining a serious outlook on life, I also believe that simultaneously it's about maintaining the childlike mindset to it. And that's the serious aspect, maybe having an organized set of steps. These are the things that I'm going to take into action. These are the relationships I'm going to build. But then there's also that childlike mentality where as far as understanding, hey, everything I'm doing right now, it may, let's be honest, it's not going to be perfect. It's probably going to work out in some other way. And it's okay for me to understand that and go with that mindset. So um, taking the breaks in between or not working yourself from 5 a.m. in the morning till 3 3, 3 a.m. at night. Do you say and that just, from wisdom? I say that from personal experience. And I think for however long, I, I definitely have gone through that journey where I would take the goal aspects so seriously that I forgot about just the simple things of life the opportunity to go outside and to take a breath of fresh air or to take a dog for a walk when, you know, it's the one thing that you enjoy. So I think there's, it's really just taking a step back and understanding that, Hey, yes, it's great to have all these goals and dreams to accomplish and aspire for, but at the same time, it's equally just as important to enjoy the simple things that life has to offer. 
Yeah, yeah, so true. First of all, I see Awesome Possum, my friend Serge um, is watching, and um, Awesome Possum told me in March or so I needed to get myself on one of these live events. So, Serge, here <laughs> I am. I thank Oleg for that, but um, you pushed me, and I love you for it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the simple things in life. It's funny. I feel very lucky in that I married someone who used to own a restaurant and knows how to cook. Mm. Now, there is a rule in my house, structure that was imposed <laughs> on me, <laughs> that I have to place my order for food at least 24 hours in advance. Oh, wow. And recently, yes, or I don't get that food. So that was structure <laughs> that I learned to adapt to quite quickly. <laughs> but one of the interesting things that can happen that I found myself um, falling victim to and again this relates back to what we we're talking about earlier the hidden cost of entrepreneurialism you see the need you want that revenue or you want that growth or you want your brand to move in a certain way or you want to make these connections or have these things happen and it's really on your back to do it so you you know your drive at least in my case the drive can really kick into a very extreme place and mm -hmm. there were a couple of times, particularly earlier in the winter when, or in the spring, when the lockdown was in full gear here in New York City, um, and there was nothing really to do, if my mind let me, besides work, where all of a sudden I was running out of food and not placing my order 24 hours in advance. And I had mm -hmm. a talking to, Scott, I'm concerned because it's not like you to not be concerned about your appetite. <laughs> you're working so hard that if you're not placing your orders for food, you're pushing too hard. Um, mm. And that was a classic example where it was really even the drive, the mission, and the desire to what I call self-actualize was so overpowering, to be honest, so over the top, mm -hmm. that even my ability to put a fork on a plate and shovel that into my mouth was getting set aside, let alone the fun stuff. It actually took some self-discipline for me to pull back and begin to do things like, you know, get my um, disco music in, in, into my phone and start walking around. And so what you're also talking about and, and going as to that theme is self-discipline. Um, mm -hmm. Because joy, enjoying walking the dog, like you just said, can be self-discipline. And that's, again, something you know, like they talk about that marshmallow test that little kids take, you know, to see whether mm -hmm. they'll succeed in life or not. Is that something that someone like you just had? Or is it something that you had to learn? And if so, what exactly was the trigger for you learning it? Or if it wasn't, what exactly do you think might have been that caused you to have that self-discipline um, right. innately? Right. I think that's a great point. Um, Scott, what do you have? Do you have anything that's coming up as far as any speaking engagements or anything like that that people can be a part of, or workshops or anything else that people uh, can well, get involved in? Well, I think you know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to say next, and I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be amazing to survive the Pride Summit. Um, your past doesn't determine your future. I mean, let's face it. You're going to be there, so it's going to be worth going to simply for that. I think between us and our co-presenter on July um, 26th, it is mm -hmm. the afternoon or late morning, depending on where you are, it's going to be an extraordinary event. Extraordinary people are going to be there. 
And I think one of the things that will be most amazing with about, about it is the sheer depth of the thinking mm-hmm. that is going mm-hmm. to generate into those that choose to invest their time to be there. And by the way, I use that word investment very intentionally. What I see that as is you putting in something and getting massive amounts afterwards. It's yeah. not just, um, oh, a, you know, take it and go sort of thing. One of the things I like about us as a group is that we are um, really looking to transform, yeah. build something long lasting. It's powerful yeah. stuff. So, is there anything else to talk to about besides that? There's a <laughs> lot. I could talk for hours. But, survive, you know, survive to thrive. Your past doesn't determine your future. Come. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard on any of the previous episodes, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring stories. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.